Having read all our text already today, I don't have anything uh, more to read for you here, but I'm going to refer back to them a couple times, and uh, we're going to be kind of located as our home base in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, thinking and worshiping under the theme of Christmas for the isolated. And I mentioned to our staff in the prior weeks that I would not be at all surprised if today we had maybe 10 times as many people worshiping with us online eventually when we stream the service at four o'clock is what we will have here in person. And okay, glass half full, thinking positively. Um, that What that means is in the past eight, nine, 10 months, we have sort of successfully shifted a lot of ministry stuff online. So worship services, Bible studies, that sort of thing. We've been able by God's grace through technology to push a lot of that stuff online. More negatively, what that means practically is that um, any sweet Christmas sentiments about, you know, togetherness and family gatherings and that sort of stuff all sort of goes out the window this year. And in fact, if you try to do it status quo, if you try to do everything exactly as normal and jackhammer haphazardly all those sweet sentiments into your life, if you do everything normal, what you end up doing is probably putting potentially in the same gathering some loved ones, you know, at greater risk of becoming sick. And it's like, what, what a sinister virus that is, that it isolates people. You know, it's always been fascinating to me that arguably the single most psychologically devastating thing that we can do in our criminal justice system is we can put people into a room in something called solitary confinement. And what that means is they're not allowed to talk to anybody and they're not allowed to hear from anybody else and they're not allowed to have any kind of physical contact. And actually, if you let somebody go through that experience long enough, they'll go insane. Because there's something so relationally foundational to human beings about communication and about physical touch that if we don't have it for a long time, if we isolate for too long, we break. And maybe my favorite example of this ever put on film, I know this is a little bit old now, but the uh, early 2000s, I think it was, there was that Tom Hanks movie, Castaway, right? You, a lot of you have seen Castaway. It's that story where he's stranded on an island and he draws a face on a little volleyball and he names Wilson and he talks to it and he looks like he's acting crazy, but the catch to it is he's actually talking to the volleyball so that he doesn't go crazy. And what's further interesting is Tom Hanks, you know, he's arguably, he's also maybe one of the most thoughtful actors of our generation. And, you know, he does this in Castaway, but he actually does this in all of his movies. If you like stand back and zoom out and pay attention, you'll see that it, whether it's you know, Forrest Gump or The Terminal or Apollo 13 or Philadelphia or Sleepless in Seattle or even Big, he always plays the same kind of basic role. He's always an outsider. He's always somebody who never really feels like he fits in anywhere in life. And actually, if you look at the guy who does a lot of the movies with him, Steven Spielberg, you know, the director, producer, all his greatest movies have some of that same kind of theme too. So you look at like E.T., and what is it? It's the story of uh, a young individual 
who really has to meet somebody from a different galaxy before he actually feels like anybody truly knows him, or from the other perspective, it's somebody who cannot find their place in this world and is just desperate to eventually locate home. And therefore, what like Hanks and Spielberg and anybody who really understands this concept, the powerful idea that they're tapping into in all these narratives is the idea of the universal human sentiment. I just don't really belong here. I don't really belong in this world. I'm always on the outside looking in. And, and for that matter, even though there's moments in life where you feel like, okay, I'm home, where there's this warm feeling of acceptance. And actually, you know, our memories are really good at editing past behaviors down. It's what nostalgia does. Is it, <laughs> it narrows and edits everything down into feeling like, oh, my whole, that whole year of my life was wonderful or my whole childhood was wonderful. And like, no, not at, not at the time it wasn't. You know, uh, and even when you experience those moments, they last maybe like a minute or maybe a couple of weeks, I don't know. But eventually, inevitably, it goes back to that feeling of like cold, lonely, scared. You know, it's like being a shepherd out on that chilly night on the first Christmas Eve outside of Bethlehem and all the lights are over there and all the people are over there and what am I doing? I'm out here, I'm cold, I'm scared, it's dark. The only people I have to talk to are sheep and I mean, they just give you that vacant stare back and it's, you know, sheep are better than no sheep but they don't get me. And I wish, they, I wish somebody got me. And I think you know, 2020 has been for a lot of us, even those of us who would maybe categorize ourselves as kind of introverted, it's a little bit of a wake-up call to how painful isolation can actually be. And what's further interesting is if you understand the Bible in terms of like that lens of uh, family and community and togetherness. So one of the main concepts of the Bible is this thing called sin. And what does sin do? You could, one way to define it would be the, the main thing sin does is it separates. So uh, the prophet Isaiah once famously said, your iniquities have separated you from God. In other words, your sins, they push you and drive a wedge relationally. They isolate you from what you were made to be and who you were made for. And in fact, another major concept of the Bible is the concept of hell. And one way to describe it would be like the longest single most psychologically devastating isolation and outsider experience that is simply stretched out on a trajectory of eternity. And after a lifetime's worth of saying, me first, me first, me first, me first, God eventually says, fine, you do it your way. You, you go it alone and you're not going to like it. Now, I don't know for sure if that's what actually hell is like, but I do know the Bible very clearly says sin separates. And I also know that very clearly God does not want us to be alone. And that is like, again, foundational in scripture. If you go back to the opening pages and opening chapters and at the end of the first, the week of creation, what is the first thing that God in the universe says is not quite right? After he creates Adam, he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, unfortunately, a lot of Christians just overinterpret that to mean something like marriage. And uh, that's not the case. You get to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul is talking, he's trumpeting the benefits of singleness and the blessings attached to singleness. And God never said it's not good to be unmarried. 
Some Christians say that. That's not what God says. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And so what Satan does is he picks up on that theme and he says, okay, what can I do to destroy the world? I can release these forces into the world that cause selfishness and brokenness and isolation so that human beings are struggling to alienate and with ostracizing and demonizing and quarantining. And you know what's super interesting? Long before there was any virus or pandemic, there was a bunch of humans that didn't actually want to get together with other human beings. This problem is, the, the problem is bigger than any kind of virus right now. It's deeper than that that separates us. And so perhaps it's not all that surprising that when God first comes to proclaim the good news of a savior who reconciles the world, via his angelic messengers, the first people that he goes to are shepherds. I pressed you to think about that earlier. Why shepherds? See, the wise men we kind of get. And wise men, technically, they're not even, you know, Christmas exactly. They're kind of after Christmas. But we nonetheless get it because the wise men are, they are prominent status individuals in society. And the gospel of the wise men is essentially the fact that the gospel goes to Gentiles too. The savior is not just the king savior of the the Jews. He's the savior of all the world. These are people who are physically far off. They're ethnic outsiders. The shepherds weren't physically far off. The gospel of the shepherds, is not that they are physically far off, it's that they're socially far off. It's that they're social outsiders. And if you don't know, these people who are always alone in life, they are, they're, they're religious and they're social outcasts. According to the Jewish ceremonial laws, shepherds were completely unclean. People didn't want to go near them, which is ironic because they're actually taking care of the sheep that are used in the festivals and the Jewish celebrations and stuff like that. But the shepherds were never actually allowed to attend any of those Jewish festivals or celebrations. Uh, they were unclean. They, they didn't work a nine to five. And so their schedules like didn't totally always allow for it. Somebody had to watch the sheep. They couldn't just leave them alone. Not only that, they're, they don't even have a legal witness in society. Sometimes on Easter Sunday, we talk about how the first witnesses to the empty tomb were women, which is unique because in that day and age, women technically didn't have legal status, which means if you are making up the story about Jesus' resurrection, you would never make it up with women as the first witnesses. The exact same thing is true about the shepherds. They had no legal status and no legal witness either. They don't even have names so far as we can tell. They're anonymous. At least, you know, the wise men, the church tradition in history has given the wise men names, Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, Well, what has the church historically given as names to the shepherds? Nothing. No one cares. That's the whole point. No one cares about the shepherds. Almost no one. Someone cares about the shepherds. And therefore, the point of the gospel to the shepherds, perhaps God sent angels specifically to them, not despite their lack of status, but precisely because of who they were, precisely because of their lack of status, because God in going to them is showing them that his love is not discriminatory love. See, God is not a God who favors the kings and the queens over the hourly workers. And he doesn't favor the religious professionals over the people in the pews. And he doesn't favor a man or a woman or a child or the more intelligent or the more wealthy or the more physically attractive. The rest of the world all does that. Everybody does that. You and I do that too, unfortunately. The rest of the world is constantly ranking, constantly evaluating. God is aware of all that stuff, but he doesn't value on the basis of that stuff. And therefore, the the gospel to the shepherds is that God doesn't love the way the world loves. God loves the way the world should love if this world was actually a paradise. 
And maybe that's the love that you've sort of been longing for your whole life. Undeserved, unearned, unmitigated, unlimited. At Christmas, God's love, you know, God shows his love is infinite. People knew to some extent, his, his holiness is infinite. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever God shows up, we see him in this consuming holy fire and nobody wants to go near him. And nobody gets, is able to get close to him. And what does he do at Christmas? God takes that same infinite holiness and love and he wraps it in several pounds of human flesh. Why? So that those of us who have spent a good chunk of our lives feeling like not more than a couple ounces of insignificance would realize that we too get equal status in God's family for all eternity. And, you know, the, the humility of it, it doesn't just end at Christmas because it is humble, God making himself human and God making himself a human who doesn't get born in a palace but gets born in a stinky old manger. Where does it go from there? He takes that life and he goes innocently to a cross. He goes to a cross to die a criminal's death for crimes that he didn't do to take punishment for mankind's sins, your sins and my sins. In other words, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you specifically, it says, through his poverty might become eternally rich. King Jesus entered a smelly barn for smelly, stinky shepherds so that those rejected outsiders can forever reign with him as brothers and sisters, kings and queens for all eternity. Why would somebody voluntarily do that? Why would somebody make that trade? The only thing that I can think is love causes people to act crazy sometimes. God became lowly to rescue the lowly. God became rejected to receive the rejected and the people who got rejected totally got the gospel. And that's why those shepherds on this Christmas Eve, you know, again, I imagine them chilly, sitting outside Bethlehem, wondering what was going on over there, that kind of fear of missing out, always being on the outside thing. And the angel comes to them and says, I get it. I totally get it. Don't worry. We'll take care of this. The Savior has come to give you the life that you were always meant to have, the life that's better than this life. And the shepherds were so ecstatic about this that they could not help themselves from investigating it further and then taking it and telling everybody they knew about it because actually that's the very nature of good news. News is good to the degree that you think I want to share it with others. And they thought it was truly good news. And that's why our text says at the end of what we read a moment ago, it says, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. All right, so that's the gospel of the shepherds. I want to give you real briefly here three thoughts about this, okay? And I think the appropriate question that we ask on Christmas Eve, not just the question that it asks of us, the but the question that we should be asking the text is how do we respond to the birth of Jesus Christ? And here's what it is. I'll give you three quick things, okay? First of all, don't reject the message for the sake of the messenger. Um, there's a really interesting detail that you might have missed. 
because it's, it's kind of subtle in here. But you'll notice when the shepherds heard the proclamation, a savior has been born to you from the angels, not only did they go and see and investigate and they rejoiced and they worshiped, and then they took the exact same message and they went and they shared it with everybody else. And everybody else we're told was amazed. Now we're not told everybody else believed. We're not told everybody else investigated. We're not told everybody else worshiped. In other words, they both have the exact same message. A savior has been born to you. The only difference I can tell so far is between the two is the shepherds as a messenger, they got an angel. But everybody else, when they heard the gospel that night, they got uh, a shepherd. It's really easy to dismiss a message because of the unimpressiveness of the messenger. I can't tell you how many times I've done like Bible classes with people before who will say something along the lines of, I really like this Jesus, who he, what, who he is and what he has to say. What I'm not crazy about is his Christians. What I'm not crazy about is his church. Don't reject the message for the sake of the messenger. See, <laughs> the vast majority of the people, when they hear the gospel message, they don't get angels. The vast majority of people in life don't get angels. They get something that resembles shepherds unimpressive messengers. In fact, most of you who heard the gospel, when you first heard the gospel, it was a fairly unimpressive parent or a fairly unimpressive pastor or a fairly unimpressive teacher or a fairly unimpressive friend, all terribly flawed in so many different ways. Don't reject the message for the sake of the messenger. Don't, don't reject a vaccine because the nurse administering it that day is a little cranky. The medicine of the gospel is much bigger than any of its flawed messengers, okay? So don't let that be an excuse if that ever has been. Number two, ponder, praise, and don't panic. Um, the angels, when they showed up, we're told that the shepherds responded by being terrified. Okay, this, by the way, if you don't know, is the natural reaction whenever somebody in life, uh, throughout the Bible, whenever a holy messenger shows up, an angel or, or God himself, they're always terrified. Why? Because when you get into the presence of someone or something superlative that is so much bigger and better than you, morally or otherwise, you, you become acutely aware of your own imperfections and flaws. And the shepherds are. And um, yet the first thing that the angels say is, don't be afraid. Why? Because today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you who has come to reconcile sinful humanity with a holy God on the back of that Messiah, and that will bring peace into your life if you let it. Now, again, interestingly, this gospel is being proclaimed against the backdrop of something called, it, historically, it's referred to as the Pax Romana. The uh, cultural elites at the time essentially thought, wow, our Roman law and our Greek philosophy and our pagan religion is so advanced that we are the apex of the history of human civilization. In some ways they were, but they thought this is, we are going to create through our systems, our human systems, some kind of utopian existence. The cultural elites named it that. The commoners didn't think that. The commoners who were still struggling and still suffering under oppression and disease and dying, they knew exactly what was going on. And therefore, you know, when the angels come and give this message of good news and peace to the shepherds, they don't first say, and now your life is going to be perfect from here on out. Now, in, in a sense, in Christ, it will be. They'll redeem, be redeemed to heaven. But momentarily, in the moment, what you can have right now is no fear. That's what they're offering right now. The opportunity for no fear. Why? Um, 
You know, and I say this as somebody who really, and I told you this before, I've honestly battled an anxiety disorder for a good chunk of my life. I've by no means mastered this, but I don't even know if I would be alive or be here today if uh, I hadn't fully gotten some comfort under the assurances of Jesus Christ and what he's offering with a end your fear right now kind of message. Well, how does this work? Look, it's like this. Why are you afraid so much? Why are you so anxious and so stressed out and so depressed? It's for reasons like fear of failure and fear of rejection. And what if somebody doesn't like me? Or what if somebody breaks up with me? Or what if somebody disowns me? Or what if somebody doesn't approve of me? And look, what if you were so filled with the love of a savior that you thought the only opinion that actually matters for all eternity is the one that has already loved, accepted, and blessed blessed me in Christ Jesus. What difference does it make what a bunch of other sinful human beings think about me? Your, your fear would go away. Or what if you're so afraid about, you know, this past year, you've, the uncertainty, oh, but the circumstances. I can't control the circumstances. Well, okay, yeah, but what if you didn't have to be afraid of the future? What if you actually believed that there is a God so sovereign and so loving that he not only is in control of the stars in the sky, but every cell of your body and that he's a risen savior, which means he's conquered death. And if he's conquered death, then the scariest thing that life can possibly thrown at you, he's already defeated. Why not just trust him already? If you were so filled with his risen spirit, you wouldn't have to be afraid. See, In other words, the problem in life is not the difficult circumstances we face. It's the lack of understanding of how big of a God and a risen Savior we have and that his spirit is with us constantly. We get scared, in other words, primarily not because things are tough. We get scared because we don't completely trust the guy. And the angel's solution is Christmas. Don't be afraid. Behold. In other words, what they're saying is to the degree that you understand the message of Christmas, to the degree that you see the truths of Christmas, to the degree that you do what Mary did, which is ponder them in your heart, your fears will start to melt away. Final thought, get up and move to see what the Lord has told you. You, for Christmas, to celebrate Christmas, you have to be active. You have to get up and go. You have to get up and see. And trust me, I get this. Christmas, again, the interesting thing about being born and raised in a culture that where everybody sort of celebrates Christmas to a large degree is it becomes like just white noise. It becomes just nostalgia. It don't, don't let Christmas become nostalgia for you. Okay. Um, some of you, let's just be real honest about it here for a second. Some of you come and do stuff like Christmas and celebrate even worship services at Christmas. Why? Because you have family members who really want you to. And it becomes part of the agenda of Christmas. And so what we do is we, we decorate the tree and we frost the cookies and then we attend worship and then we go and we open our presents. Don't let that, at some point in time, as an adult, you have to investigate this for yourself. You have, like this, you can't stay out in the fields. You have to go and investigate this for yourself. And all I'd ask you is, have you ever been afraid? Have you ever felt like such an outsider? And for that matter, have you ever, like, stopped, we stop scrolling for five minutes and we contemplate the big questions of life and we say, seriously, is this all there is? We live, we sleep, we work, we take a couple pictures of all of it and then we die. Is that what there is? If you've ever asked yourself, maybe that's God trying to grab your attention tonight and say, today 
in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. After a year's worth of isolation and pandemic, after a year's worth of fear and insecurity, what would you wait for? Go and investigate for yourself what the angels were proclaiming that night. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask you to help us know that we are not alone. You have shown up to take away the guilt of our sins, the fear of our uncertainty, and the painful isolation of being alone. Let us humbly, joyfully receive that gift and let us eagerly lift up your name in our lives, celebrating the birth of our Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.